Well, let me tell you this, my friend. Anybody who's doing a deal right now is overpaying. Now, it depends how much you're overpaying. Are you overpaying by 5% or are you overpaying by 50%? 99% of sponsors right now, if they tell you they are not overpaying, they are lying to you. They are lying to you through their teeth. Do not believe a word of what they say. Welcome to XN State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XN State. Welcome to the very first episode of XN State. This is your host, JCQ. Thank you for tuning in to today's show. I am incredibly excited to finally be kicking this show off the ground and bringing you the words and advice of fantastic guests who are doing big things in the world of real estate. We have a very interesting guest for our first episode as we welcome to the show the co-founder of Boardwalk Wealth, Omar Khan. Boardwalk Wealth is a private equity firm based in Dallas that focuses on the acquisition and repositioning of Class B and C apartments. They have done over $200 million in acquisitions in the last three years alone. Prior to co-founding Boardwalk Wealth, Omar worked in the investment banking industry. He is a CFA charter holder and has advised on over $3.7 billion of capital financing and M&A transactions. As of recently, he has transferred his financial background and underwriting expertise into the world of real estate. During today's interview, we talk about what markets Boardwalk Wealth is looking to expand in and why. We talk about how Boardwalk Wealth identifies opportunistic markets and how they zone in on them and eventually secure a deal there. We talk about today's market and where we are on the economic cycle and much, much more. It is an honor to have Omar on the show and it is just as great an honor to have you tuning in today and listening to this interview. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope that I get to hear from you very soon. And without further ado, welcome to the first episode of XN States with Omar Khan. Omar, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you, sir? Very good. Thank you. Very excited to get this conversation going. So I'm going to experiment a little bit today. Here you go. Oh, wow. We're experimenting <laughs> with some effects on the computer. I like it. I like yeah. it. So, Omar, let's begin by hearing a little bit about what you do and about your company, Boardwalk Wealth. Hey, man, we're a real estate company. Primarily, we invest in other areas of uh, other areas as well. Primarily, we're a real estate company. We have assets in Texas, Florida, and Georgia now. Primarily, acquiring B and B plus value add properties. They're typically, you know, average ticket size is about twenty point five million dollars, give or take. And, you know, our model is we come in, uh, we rehab, renovate, like a lot of value add folks, and mm-hmm. then decide at the year two or three mark, whether we want to actually keep the property and hold it long-term or not. Mm-hmm. And that basically determines, right? So we, my background's in uh, finance. I've structured a lot of complex deals and stuff. So we structure our deals with maximum flexibility. Mm-hmm. So we're basically not trying to, we're not trying to hit a home run. We're, all, we're just trying to, you know, get a steady, stable return over a long-term period of time. So your background is in, in multifamily and real estate? No, or my background is in finance, man. I was working on the institutional side, investment banks, corporate finance, M&A for a very long period of time. My family owns a lot of commercial real estate. So, okay. you know, growing up, I kind of had a bit of an idea about all those things. I mean, I don't really have to do a lot because I, I mean, they were in my name partially as a shareholder, but, you know, you kind of grow up around a business where people own properties and stuff and you kind of understand stuff, right? Yeah. And when your background's in finance, structuring deals. So, 
I, I can tell you structuring oil and gas fields is a lot more difficult than structuring real estate deals. I can imagine. I can imagine. So how did you make that jump from finance to real estate? Well, I mean, I still am kind of financial real estate of sorts because, you know, mm -hmm. I'm an asset manager. I run the company and all. So a lot of, I think on the higher level financial side, a lot of skills are cross transferable. So, you know, if you're say a high level finance operations person in one industry, a lot of things are cross transferable is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's unlike say being say an engineer, right? If you're a particular type of, say, if you're an electrical engineer, you might have a hard time being I don't know, a mechanical engineer. I don't mm -hmm. know. I'm just spitballing here, right? Yeah. But in finance, a lot of things, obviously industry experience helps, but a lot of things are very similar and cross-transferable. In my particular case, what had happened is that I had a decade plus worth of experience. I had structured about three, $3.75 billion, close to $4 billion in deals. So when I moved to the U.S. from Canada a few years ago, it was just the right time for me to do my own thing. And mm -hmm. anyways, uh, between my wife and I, Again, we were young at that time. It's a good problem to have, but we were paying comfortably in the six figures in taxes. Mm -hmm. So that was another reason for us to kind of find a way to reduce our tax exposure, right? Okay. Legally, obviously. So there is a confluence of that. It was right timing. The fact that we wanted to reduce our tax exposure, the fact that I had a background in somewhat through family and other investments in real estate. I had some good connections in terms of uh, money and everything. So that, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of things kind of help, right? But you still yeah. have to go do it and you still have to, go through that entire process of setting up your own business, doing a few deals, you know, that entire thing still takes time. And how did Boardwalk Wealth come about? Once you did you, first you got exposed into real estate, you started looking at some investments. Well, how it came about is that uh, every other domain name on the planet was already taken. Uh, so when I actually decided to go to GoDaddy or whatever, you got to select your company name. Uh -huh. You know, my name is Omar Khan. So I obviously uh, yeah. was not going to name it Khan Investments because that's asking for the FBI to investigate me for money laundering. I'm sure you that domain's that, that already taken. You know, it, randomly they will investigate me every time, right? So yeah. we had to pick a nice name. I like Boardwalk. I mean, we went through a lot of names, right? And basically what happened sure. is every time you look at a name, somebody's already taken their domain. So, yeah, no. you know, through the process of hard work and elimination, that's how we got the name. But how we started was basically, I knew I was going to do this. So, and basically it was a holding company for a lot of our other investments as well. So that's kind of how the process started. Okay. And so you immediately, did you start by looking at different asset classes and finding out which best fit for you? Or did you right off the bat started looking at multifamily? Look, what actually happened is that uh, basically when I moved down to the U.S., close family friends of ours, they're bigger. Uh, they're a very wealthy family, and they were they were doing some estate planning. They're out of Toronto. They own a lot of uh, Woodlands. In fact, they own a couple of office properties in Woodlands okay. where you are. And because you know they had to do some estate planning and they had to pass assets from one generation to the other in a tax efficient manner. So they were good friends of mine. The guy was really I'm one of my best friends. So I helped them basically restructure some of their portfolio and mm -hmm. holdings to basically make sure you know. His sisters got what they needed. He got what he needed. Everybody was happy, but in a tax efficient way. And in the process, you know, I started meeting people and I realized for me, it was a combination of things. It was tax benefits, but also the fact that I had to go explain this investment strategy to people mm -hmm. who, from whom I would get money, right? So typically explaining an office deal is a lot harder than explaining an apartment deal. I can yeah. tell you that. So it's a case of choosing the path of least resistance. It turns out the path of least resistance also happened to be a lucrative path uh, mm -hmm. monetarily as well. So there's a lot of things that worked out in my favor. You know, a lot of things are, you work hard, but luck is also involved, right? So it's a combination of things, right? It wasn't just like one thing that led to another thing. 
Yeah, so Boardwalk Wealth invests has invested so far only in multifamily projects. Yeah, we right? privately, we don't put it on our website. We privately done some uh, industrial assets as well, okay. right? And we're always looking for triple net properties, but we can take that on our own books, right? But for our syndication and public sort of uh, investment stores are all in multifamily. Okay. And what about, do you only buy existing assets or do you also develop from the ground up? So we are not developing for the time being from the ground up. That is obviously a different skill set completely, mm-hmm. right? And uh, that requires us to get, I don't have that skill set at the time being. So yeah, if I have a good partner, I have one of my really good partners. He finances a lot of ground up development as well. So that's an area we are going to look at in the future. But for the time being, because it's such a spe- because ground up development, is such a specialized area, right? You really mm-hmm. need to hone your niche, you really need to know what you're doing. So that's something that say in the next two or five years we might be looking at, but for the time it's all existing assets that are mismanaged basically. Because a lot of the skills are also very much transferable, like underwriting, which you're an expert on and evaluating a deal, it's financial. Oh no, no, no. like I said, a lot of things are are cross transferable, but still relatively, I think on the spectrum of how hard something is to do, relatively speaking, again, relatively speaking, yeah. right? I think doing a value-add multifamily syndication of uh, existing property where you kind of have a system and process built down of sorts, right? Yeah. I think it's relatively is easier to do than ground-up development of a high-rise, as an example. Relatively speaking, there's, there's less moving parts. There's definitely less risk because you're already buying an existing asset that's already cash flowing. Yeah. So, but the upside for development is so much higher, man. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the up, I mean, let's put it this way: all the super wealthy, rich people we, you know, you hear about as real estate people, right? They're mm-hmm. all developers. Yeah. And they're all developers. You kind of because I mean, you know, if you do it the right way, if you time it the right way, you've got a good team. It's a good project. The amount of money you can make in development is a freaking joke, yeah, man. How, how much more you can make? There's only so much value that you can add to an existing project oh, yeah, that, that's already cash flowing. Oh, I agree. hundred yeah. percent. But again, for those same reasons, the risk is a lot less reduced because your return may, you may underwrite a 15% return on a, on a value add project. And at the end of the day, it may end up being a 5%, but it's very unlikely that you end up losing the asset yeah. for some other reason. But in development there, you can purchase a property and then expect to break ground on it in six months and then four years later things have happened and you're still not producing any cash oh yeah and like i said i think for me the other thing that i realized pretty quickly because i've lived in a few countries is for development it also required me having a certain level of political and other connections as well knowing people Mm -hmm. in the city hall getting all their stuff done which i knew was there so i found at the start at least get the ship rolling invest in good quality projects which return very handsome money to our investors so they become rich along the way mm-hmm. and then over a period of time as you develop the skill and repertoire you keep expanding yourself you know yeah of course so can you repeat it again the markets that you're in right now so i'm in texas basically in texas. san antonio and austin we're looking at deals in dallas but nothing's panned out okay. i'm in jacksonville in florida and atlanta in georgia okay and are those the only markets that you're looking at or, or are you also looking at other markets to potentially look, I look to? at other markets from time to time, but I'm slowly reducing the amount of markets I'm in as opposed to expanding unless there's, you know, the deal of the century comes by, right? Mm-hmm. Short of that, I'm not really that interested in other markets, but those are the core markets. And again, I want to reduce those markets as well, actually, to two or three, two actually from four. What are some of the factors or the most important factors that you could take into consideration when choosing which markets to zone into? 
Well, look, in my particular case, I'm not interested in going to smaller markets like, say, with populations of less than, say, six or 700,000. I just, it's just not worth my time. I'm sure there are good deals out there. I'm not saying that. So for me, what's very important from the time I spent on the institutional trading desks and all of that is that I have to understand how much is the depth of liquidity in a market, right? Mm -hmm. So for any given sale, how many buyers or sellers there are in a market that are dealing with that type of product. So in say markets like say Houston, Dallas, Atlanta, because these are big vibrant markets. So what happens is anytime you go to buy or sell, especially anytime you go to buy, you always have a lot of buyers, mm-hmm. right? Because they're competing against you. Now it sucks that you have to compete against buyers, but when you put yourself on the other side, what you also realize is when it comes time to sell, there will always be a lot of buyers. Mm-hmm. But in smaller markets, you don't necessarily have that, right? So what happens, what I what I understand is, look, it's a very relationship-driven business. That's why even though I'm in Dallas, I'm in four cities and I know all the brokers and we talk with each other all the time. And because it's relationship driven, I can actually work that relationship to get a good deal for us, right? But I don't necessarily feel like in a smaller market where I, because the way I'm looking, look, the way I'm looking at it is not whether I can acquire a deal or not. The way I'm looking at it is if I want to get out of the deal, how quickly can I get out of the deal, right? To get money, liquidity, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I can only do that in, for instance, bigger markets. I can't do that in smaller markets. In my particular case, what I also wanted to do was stick in the South, primarily say the Southeast, which is kind of Atlanta and Texas, mm-hmm. because I feel these, this, there's a long-term secular trend of people moving into these markets. That's right? the main reason. It's, it's the main reason, obviously. Look, I'm not yeah. the person who discovered this, right? Obviously, I'm not the first person who discovered this thing. And the other thing for me in these markets, especially Florida and Texas also, is that, again, living in Canada, we have this thing called for cash for keys, by the way, which is really stupid concept. Okay, <laughs> So cash for, and by the way, you see, I don't know if you know this, it's in both the coasts as well. So what happens is if a tenant is basically, say, not paying you rent, as an example, mm-hmm. the eviction process in Toronto can take three, four, six, eight, ten months. Wow. So what happens? No, I'm, I'm not joking with you. It's, by the way, the same in a city like Boston or San Francisco, because what happens is, so what eventually starts happening is tenants will move into your properties. They will eventually stop paying rent. And what happens is cash for keys basically means that instead of going through this long arbitration process, because you can't even file for eviction, what you basically a lot of landlords end up doing is they give you cash to the tenants and the mm-hmm. tenant gives them keys and leaves. So basically, a tenant is holding you hostage, even though they're Mm -hmm. the person who owns you money. Mm -hmm. So in these markets, specifically Texas, Florida, and Georgia, if somebody doesn't pay you money, you're able to file uh, in somewhat efficiently an eviction process and, you know, either evict the person. And it's not nice, but at least you evict the person and you're not held hostage this way, right? So that was another big reason why I wanted to be in these markets. I I just don't want to be held hostage for no reason. Yeah. How long ago did you move in to Dallas? Four years ago. Four years ago. And the the growth that Dallas has been seeing is amazing, right? Oh, yeah. I think Dallas is a fantastic. I'm so glad, for instance, we moved to Dallas. Yeah. I'm so lucky that I think we moved to Dallas. It's a fantastic. Look, all over Texas is fantastic. Houston yeah, is so fantastic. Really, yeah. It's, I mean, look, if you're in Texas anywhere, Houston, and by anywhere, <laughs> I mean the four cities. I don't mean all of Texas. You know, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin. I mean, come on, man. Yeah, you can't Give go wrong at the moment. You really cannot go wrong. You really have to try to go wrong. For you to go yeah. around. And I agree with you. The, the main reason and real estate developments and real estate investments are going to keep being successful in, in these cities as long as as many people are today moving into these cities continue to do so. Oh, yeah. Right. Because look, eventually, if the people moving in is greater than the amount of uh, units coming online, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just a simple math problem, right? Your demand is way more than your supply. So it's a math issue. It's not even like whether you want to do this or you don't want to do this. It's exactly. a simple math issue. Exactly. And that's what's been the case in the last 10, 15, 20 years. And that's why the developments and investments in real estate in these markets have done tremendously well. Oh, yeah. And will hopefully yeah. can continue to do so. Well, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Yeah, I am as well. But I, I don't see the, a reason to change. I mean, it seems that, I mean, this, this just comes from, of course, looking at the stats, but also from talking to people every single week. I run into people who are moving to Houston from the Northeast or from the Midwest, from Chicago. Bro, or from my, my wife lived in upstate. My wife is a physician. She lived in upstate New York. I really don't want to get hate mail. Wow, what a uniquely miserable place to live. Upstate. <laughs> what a freaking miserable place to live. I honestly, I don't even understand why people don't move to Texas or Florida. Exactly. And I think people yeah. are starting to realize that because even a few weeks ago, I was up in New York and every time I got into an Uber, they would tell me, well, how's it like in Houston? Like, I'm thinking about moving down there. They're all considering it just because of the amount of, for the main reason is because of the amount of things they can afford and the amount, the place that they can afford to buy. Oh yeah, man. And plus your back is not against the wall. You're not stressed all the time. You know, mm-hmm. you're not always trying to say, okay, whether I should do this or I should do this. And otherwise also, man, my personal experience is people are so friendly in Texas, man. I love Texas. They're mm-hmm. so friendly. <laughs> They're so easygoing. It's, it's a joke how easygoing people are. Yeah. You know, people I'm so do surprised business. why everybody keeps saying that because you're not the person on the show to say that. Just people are insist that Texas people are so nice. And for me, it's just normal. I've been here for a long time. Oh, you have? Okay. So you yeah. must think it's an everyday thing. Yes, I think it's normal. Really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I love Texas, man. We made the best decision of, I always wanted to move to Texas ever since I was a kid because I see a lot of Cowboys movies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, not the cities are not like that, obviously, but I'm so glad we made that decision. Texas is such a nice place to live. I love Texas. Yeah, perfect. I'm subscribed to your mailings and oh, you I, I, okay. I read a lot about, about what you, I've read a few of your posts and I actually really do enjoy them. And I know one of your most recent projects called Weatherly Walk, right? In Atlanta? Yeah, but it was originally called Weatherly Walk and we're going to rebrand it as Equinox at night. Equinox what? At night. Night is the road that it's on. Oh, so Equinox I, It night. just sounds like a cool name, man, honestly. Yeah. It's rebranding. It sounds it like does. a sexy name. That's it. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, about that deal. How did you get your hands on it and why do you like it so much? Because I know you're doing and I look at the information. It looks great, but why don't you tell us a little look, bit about it? I mean, in my particular case, I do. De- I mean, look, you know, look, I'm going to give you a disclaimer. The disclaimer is I'm positive you can, one can make money in all A, B, C, D. And I've seen people make money in A, B, C, D type properties. For a person like me, the type of person I am, type of things I want to do, I had to be in a class B, B plus market, number one. I, I don't want to be in class C. I don't want to be, you know, shaking poor people for an extra $50 a month. I'm, I'm just not mm-hmm. that type of I'm not going to do that, right? So Fayetteville, where this is located, was one of our top submarkets in Atlanta because we wanted to be in Atlanta. We wanted to have a presence there. And it's and Atlanta is a city that's very, um, it's very segmented or uh, what's segregated by income. So mm-hmm. there, you, you see there's a rich part of Atlanta and there's a poor part of Atlanta and there's not a lot in the middle, right? So what you see, if you say if you're downtown Atlanta, that is fantastic, okay? So if you go, the more north you go as an example, mm-hmm. it's very, very, very rich, okay? It's very nice. Then if you go a little south of Atlanta towards the airport, it's, it's a ghetto, straight up. It's very low income, it's a ghetto. 
it's very bad. Prime is very high. And then when you go a little bit below, like a couple of miles, say 10, 20, 10-ish miles or 5-ish miles below the airport or south of the airport, you get into these small pockets like Fayetteville, Peachtree City. Mm -hmm. These are basically upscale communities, right? Where basically because of the laws, they just don't allow any multifamily construction anymore or they'll allow one every five years, right? Mm -hmm. So very good school systems. Very high income, like I'm talking like $70,000 median income in a zip code, which is really high, right? Extremely good uh, school systems, and there's not a lot of supply. In fact, it, the city doesn't even allow because they don't, they just don't want apartments, mm -hmm. right? So the stock that is there is extremely valuable, and it's not going anywhere, right? So that was one of the big reasons for us doing it. The other big reason is, for instance, Pinewood Studios, which is basically, surprisingly, you, I did not know this. There are more uh, movies shot in Pinewood Studios, which is in Fayetteville, than are shot in Hollywood. Do you know that? Wow. Yeah, I, I didn't even know I, I don't know right? if I believe it. I did not look. I knew they had a big studio, and I knew it was a big deal, but I just didn't know it was that big a deal, right? Wow. And again, the reason is the exact same why, man, people are moving from, say, what you're saying is New York, San Francisco and there because the cost of production in a place like California or LA is so high, right? Whereas they can take their same, say the same actors like Tom Cruise, Robert Downey Jr. or whatever. They take those same people, they bring them over here to Atlanta for a few months. They shoot their Avengers, their Ant-Man, whatever the hell they got to shoot. And the costs are so much lower. Then what the state is also doing is the state is offering a lot of tax incentives and breaks. To, to lure a lot of business, like what Texas has done, right? Texas mm -hmm. has given so many taxes and gets a break. So all in all, we have a, a really affluent pocket, right? A little pocket. It's got great schools. Everybody, obviously, everybody wants to go send their kids to great schools. They don't allow a lot of apartment construction, if at all. I mean, in the last five or 10 years, there's only one new building that was built in 2016, I think, right? Okay. So again, it's the same thing as that Texas thing we're talking about. Lots of demand, no supply. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out <laughs> there's lots of demand, no supply, which way things are going, mm -hmm. right? And frankly, once you come in, you offer a better quality product because people are making 70000 as a median income. You're able to charge higher rents because their alternative is leaving Fayetteville. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to leave Fayetteville. So either they pay the higher rent or they leave Fayetteville. It's one or the other. So how... This whole process went about is first you zoned in on the location that you wanted to be in. And so then... zoned in on the few submarkets that we mm -hmm. wanted to be in. So when we were talking to brokers, I did the same thing in Florida. We've done the same thing in Austin. Because a lot of times it's really funny when people say, I want to get, I want to buy a multifamily property. I was like, well, that could be anything. Mm -hmm. And it could be in any place. It could be in Mexico or Russia. <laughs> you got to be a little bit more specific here, right? Mm -hmm. So we want, we chose, we did a lot of research, chose for each of the markets we're in, what some markets we want to be, right? Mm -hmm. And if it's anything outside of that, look, we'll look at it, but we're not really that interested in it, mm -hmm. right? So when we go talk to brokers, it's a very focused conversation. Hey, I just want to be looking at these places. What do you have in these places? Now, what happens is in the short term, it reduces the amount of deal flow you look at, mm -hmm. right? Because obviously you're very, very picky. But in the long run, what happens is all the brokers now know that you're top of the list when it comes to that particular area mm -hmm. or that particular property. So when that particular profile of property comes, suddenly you shoot to the top of the list. Whereas if you're looking for a multifamily property, you're one of 10,000 people that are going to call. Mm -hmm. Right. So being very specific helps you get, but specificity I've also realized helps you get a lot of funding also. So it's not just on the deal side, 
It's on, hey, raising money for project side as well. Because if you're very specific and you do a certain thing and you're in a certain niche, people understand that you're a professional, but you obviously can't be a professional for everything. I mean, nobody's a professional for everything. So they're, they're going to give more money to the person who's a professional or a specialist in a niche as opposed to just a generalist. Mm-hmm. Of course. So that, those are some of the underlying things apart from how we selected the markets, right? So you selected this market and, and is that kind of how it went? You you were on top of the list for some brokers and you surveyed the area for a while and then you were patient until the right opportunity arose and somebody yeah. wanted to sell and you yeah. yeah, you found out about this opportunity and you moved quickly. Yeah, look, and part of this also is just staying in touch with brokers, developing mm-hmm. the right relationships. And also you've got to realize a lot of things we do now we can do because we have a track record, right? So if somebody says something, I can be like, look, dude, we've already done all this stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. What do you want? Right. It was like, there's a lot of questions that a lot of times you would think arise, do not arise because you have a track record that you can lean on. Right. So a lot of those things also come into play. Right. Yeah. Whereas for instance, say somebody new who's starting out or doesn't speak the same language or probably doesn't even have the same background. Even if they have more money, as an example, they will not be able to make that level of progress. And to give you an example, it's coincidence that one of my colleagues, he just met this guy randomly at like a, like one of these networking events. Mm-hmm. And that guy was also in the best and final four weatherly walk. And okay. he had actually, because he's new and he's starting out, he had actually offered more money. Wow. And okay. he didn't get it. But, but he didn't get it because the reason is because he doesn't have a track record. He has a credibility issue, right? I mean, look, I can say anybody can come and say, oh, I'll give you a hundred million dollars. Well, saying a hundred million dollars and delivering a hundred million dollars are two different things. Mm-hmm. Right. So the same way as in the minds of the seller and the brokers, you can say whatever you like if you don't deliver it or you don't have a track record of delivering it, then it's worthless. Yeah. And that's that's very hard for a lot of people to understand. Why would somebody not take the highest offer? And even for us coming from Mexico and Mexico, you don't see that as much. But here we've seen it a lot more and we were surprised by it at first. But sellers often go with the buyer who they maybe trust the most or sometimes even who they like more it's just a it becomes more of a a decision that is not just based on one criteria which is who's offering the highest price yeah but look think of it from this perspective as well that i mean initially i was like well why wouldn't people take the higher price when i started again but i've also realized from experiences that what happens is look even for instance let's assume in my case right we closed on this deal on time because we had the money lined up everything right mm-hmm. but that process the way you know because title and environmental and like the loan closing process even though i don't know why lenders are still stuck in the 1980s they take so long and they all do everything on email which is so stupid and faxes they still take two months to close mm-hmm. right so even if you have the money lined up it still takes one and a half to two months to close. And that's got nothing to do with me. That's got everything to do with lenders and title and this and that, right? So you've got to realize that a seller is taking a big risk Mm -hmm. because if they go with a party that say at the end of the two months says, one and a half months, oh, I need another extension. Mm -hmm. I need more money. I need this, or I need you to retrade and give me like an extra million dollars off, right? What's happening is now they can't plan for the future. Because let's assume you plan to sell this property and immediately 1031 into a new property. So you've already started talking about the new property and putting all those things in place. Now that's creating a big problem for you, mm-hmm. right? Or for yeah. instance, you want to sell this property and you want to move into another investment, but that investment is only for like this, I mean, two weeks, right? You got mm-hmm. to get your money in there. 
right? So now, if you don't send it to the right party, you don't get your money on time, and then you you can't plan things around. Yeah. So reliability is always going to be the most important thing. And people actually, it's weird. People don't realize that. I mean, there's a premium for reliability. That's why you see guys who are bigger, like they're national names. They can go in and pay less money and people will take it because they know you're, you know, it's money in the bank. Yeah, for sure. I find that very interesting, but it makes complete sense once you put it that way. Yeah, but, but it makes also makes complete sense when you become the seller. When you become the seller, it starts mm-hmm. making a lot of sense. Yeah. But when you're buying from the first time, it doesn't make too much sense. <laughs> yeah. So what are some of the things that you're having to do differently now than you were doing five years ago when you were investing? Or I don't know if you were investing five years ago, but when I you're was, starting- I was, but I wasn't running my own business, right? So look, some of the things that are different, look, things keep changing, right? So I was also doing smaller deals. Right now I'm doing bigger deals. So when you're doing bigger deals, you need to really have your shit in order, mm-hmm. right? You need to, team is already up and running so it can go like this. You need to have processes in place. Everything is a checklist of sorts. So what's happening is that things are changing, right? Mm-hmm. Because we are moving up the value stack as well, right? As we are progressing, as we have more money, as we have a bigger track record, we are moving up the value stack. So deals that we were looking at, say, three, four years ago, we're not looking at those deals anymore. So it's a process of us stretching. But obviously, because the market is very hard, what's becoming even more important is continuing those relationships. What do you mean by when you say the market is very hot? Well, the market is very hard is that everybody and their dog wants to invest in multifamily. You think that's specific to multifamily or for other assets? No, I think that's across the board. I just happen to be in multifamily, so I mm-hmm. can only talk about multifamily. But I feel it's across the board pretty much, right? Margins are compressing. Sellers can ask whatever price they want and get away with it of sorts because there's such mm-hmm. high demand for this product, right? But in those types of scenarios, having a track record, continuing to cultivate those relationships, those things become very important. But again, it's an iterative process, right? I mean, my point is there's a lot of fundamentals I have to do every week, as an example. Look, for instance, every week, even though I run this company, I got over $100 million in assets under management. Every week, I have time set aside where I have to call brokers. I'm literally like a salesperson, calling brokers, entering my notes into my CRM, even though I've got three assistants, right? Then I have separate time set out where I'm literally talking to investors, Right? Like I physically have to set time aside. It's not like, oh, I'll see if I'll call a broker when I feel like calling. No, it's on a weekly schedule. You understand? It's twice a week because I'm in multiple markets also, right? Mm-hmm. So it's literally treating, it's remembering that now as I'm growing up and I have more employees and I have all of that kind of stuff, I have to offload a lot of work to my employees, but I have to focus on the highest revenue generating items. And they're talking to brokers and talking to investors. Mm-hmm. Right? Those are the highest generating items, revenue generating items for me. So all the groundwork, I'm training my employees. I've given a lot of that work to them. I oversee them, obviously. So I have to evolve for us to grow as well. Mm-hmm. How do you evolve or how do you think differently when you're in a market like the one we're in right now that's so hot? What do you do to still be able to find deals without overpaying? Well, let me tell you this, my friend. Anybody who's doing a deal right now is overpaying. Now, it depends how much you're overpaying. Are you overpaying by 5% or are you overpaying by 50%? Mm-hmm. Any sponsor right now, nine times out of I shouldn't say any, 99% of sponsors right now, if they tell you they are not overpaying, they are lying to you. They are lying to you through their teeth. Do not believe a word of what they say. Okay, I'm a sponsor, okay? Mm-hmm. They are lying. Everyone's lying. Everybody likes to say, 
this is below sales comp and below market rents, okay? That's complete bullshit. For 99% of the deals, those things do not exist. The way most people are getting away with these things is that cap rates are compressing. So even though operationally, you know, when you mm-hmm. take over a property operationally, you might suck, but the cap rate has gone and it continues to compress. So you so look like a genius. it covers all of your mistakes. So yeah. it covers all of your mistakes. So you look like a freaking genius. Okay. Oh, what's going to so, happen when, when that shifts and when well, cap rates start to Well, my point is it's already started happening. So a lot of these mentorship students, a lot of these guys who are, I'm an engineer, but I do, I do my multifamily in the evening sort of person but I, I want to raise money right all these guys right now a good portion of these guys are getting slaughtered because wow. what's happened yeah i can tell you this all these mentors you hear about i'm not going to take their names they're two big ones one out of dallas and one out of houston you i'm telling you nine I, a lot of their students because i happen to live in dallas, mm-hmm. right a lot of their students are my investors right because you know we're all each other's investors right you talk to them and they will tell you the exact same thing even in markets like dallas even in markets like san antonio these be a lot of groups, not all of them, obviously, a lot of groups are getting their ass handed to them because look, eventually you have to be good at operations, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, eventually, I mean, it's a, it's a bit like your development work, right? You can have the hardest piece of land in the city, but if you don't title it, title it, you don't zone it, you don't construct it at the right time at the right pace with the right product, it doesn't matter how good the underlying mm-hmm. piece of land is. You still have to do a lot more work on top, Right. Yeah. So a lot of these guys in the past few years were getting away because operationally they could suck and rent growth was five, six, eight percent. But now rent growth is not five, six, eight percent. Rent growth in certain times can be two or three percent or zero percent. Mm-hmm. So now they're getting their ass handed to them. Yeah. And this is where more experienced, more sophisticated sponsors are now being like, look, last year, as an example, in 2019, we only did two deals. We could have easily done three or four deals. Okay. But we only did two deals because we put our own money into all of these deals, right? So I'm not going to go put my money into some dumb stuff, mm-hmm. right? So, but a lot of folks are. And I'm not saying they're dumb. I'm just saying a lot of folks who want to do like, they just want to do a deal for the sake of doing a deal. Within six months now, they're at a position where they're not, their NOI isn't even covering their debt service. Yeah, thing. that's why people who actually know what they're doing and actual experts, actual professionals are never worried about a recession that's coming coming up. I mean, of course, you're worried and there's things that you have to do, but there's also a positive side to it that it's going to wash out a lot of the players that have been doing very well just because they've been riding on on how hot the market has been. Yeah, so look, I'm, I'm telling you this right now. You would think in a place like Dallas, as an example, right? Let's use Dallas. Dallas is a very hot market, right? Very, mm-hmm. hot. very hot. And it's how been hot you, for a for, while. For a long time, right? Yeah. How do you screw up a deal in Dallas? You would think like, really, dude, like what? Because you have to yeah. try to screw up a deal, right? You have to go out of your way to screw up a deal. Exactly. Right? Yeah, deals are getting screwed up in Dallas right now by these mentorship groups. Mm-hmm. Right? Because it's very, because look, I have a few of these investors and I tell them, look, you're an engineer, right? You worked really hard to get your engineering degree as an example, right? I'm not mm-hmm. saying you need a degree in real estate, but you know, you work really hard at engineering. Then you work really hard at your engineering job. So now you're a really trained professional, right? Do you think I can take a weekend course and do your job in like less than a month? Mm-hmm. Because if I can, that means you have a really shitty job that doesn't require a lot of brain cells, mm-hmm. right? So it's the same way. Real estate is like any other businessman. Just because it's a great way to make money doesn't mean somebody's mom can come and do it. But that's what we've been seeing in, in the past few years, right? I mean, since I started, I've, I've been developing for almost five years, but I only recently got into all the 
multifamily investing just because of everything that I've seen on social media and all the hype that's been around it. And at first I was very surprised. I was, how can it be that easy? Yeah. But everybody is, has at least up to this point has made a lot of money. So, but I'm telling you right now, the, the, look, let me tell you this on social media. A lot of these guys obviously only put the best things. They are not going to put the worst things, right? Mm-hmm. A lot, not everybody again, but a significant portion of these people, their deals are underwater. They like let that, let you know, I have a partner out of Dallas, Sam, and he they did a deal and he was returning. He it's again, he's a very smart guy as well. So they're returning something like eight or 10% or 11% now that the property stabilized cash on cash. Right. And he was talking to me the other day because we keep looking for deals from time to time. And he's like, I gave it 10 or 11 percent. I'm forgetting the exact number cash from cash to one of my investors. And he called me up and said, wow, I'm averaging right now one and a half percent cash from cash across the rest of my deals. Because all these guys, what they do is they'll show you a really high number and everybody gets super horny. Oh, my God. 10 percent cash from cash. And you're thinking all these guys with 10,000, 20,000 units, they can't take this number. How can you, who works part-time on real estate in the evenings after your kid goes to sleep, how are you getting all this stuff, man? And that was the the exact question that I've been asking myself for a while. Yeah. So now a lot of these people are getting their ass handed to them. I can tell you this. And especially in places like Dallas. They've been riding a hot market. Yeah. And you can only do that for so long. Look, in some of their defense, okay, I've got a few investors who tell me, Look, I was just lucky. It was the right time. It was the right opportunity. I, it was just sheer dumb luck. And those are the smart guys, right? They realized it was luck and they didn't overplay their hand. But there's lots of guys who believe that they confuse good luck with skill. And that's a very dangerous thing to confuse. And right? skill takes time to develop. Skill takes time, right? Good luck can, I mean, good luck can happen to me. I can become a developer overnight if like everything falls into place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So it's or a if, you, if, you, if you would have developed something in Dallas in the past five, eight years, you would have done yeah. very well. No, think like about that. it. If I developed in 2011 and it was coming online, let's assume I developed in 2013 and it came online in 2016. Mm-hmm. I could have screwed up everything and I would have made money. Exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah. And even if maybe your property, your development didn't work out and you ended up having to sell the property. You were still you probably, the <laughs> you yeah. probably still would have done very yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, you're right. hundred percent. Yeah. Well, hopefully what this means is that people will start underwriting more conservatively. Oh, they're not going to do it, man. And All not, these mentorship- not, or at least not jumping into things so quickly. They're because- not going to do it, man. And most of these mentorship groups, groups, students, all these part-timers who wanted, again, I'm not saying you need to be a smart person to do real estate. And it's estate. not all of them, right? Yeah. I, am an, I am not a smart person and I'm doing real estate. Okay, so you don't need to be super smart. But you got to at least know what you're doing. That's mm-hmm. all I'm saying. And you'll be very surprised. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. We've talked about the market and what you, the what factors you consider in zoning in on a market. But now when evaluating on a specific property to buy in, what are the most important factors that you look at in the underwriting of a specific property? So basically, look, how much rent, look, number one, net, net, it beca- for, for what I do at least, right? Mm-hmm. It's rent upside. That is always number one. Rent right? upside. Rent upside. Like how much rent upside exists compared to cops, relatively speaking, right? If the rent upside is $50 with the way the pricing is right now, yeah, that's not going to work for us. Yeah. Rent has got, rent upside has got to be at least $100, $150. Because what I, it's simple maths, man. If I come in and invest like $6,000, because all these guys, all the brokers say, oh, you can invest $3,500 to $4,000. 
Mm -hmm. I can tell you this, that shit doesn't happen. Okay. Mm -hmm. You eventually end up spending $5,500 to get somewhat of a decent product, right? Per unit, right? So if you end up spending $5,500 to maybe like say $6,000, but let's assume even if you spend $5,000, right? So that's 100, I'm doing a calculator, 100 divided by 12, divided, which is $1,200, divided by say 5,500, your ROI is about 21% or 22%. You've got to be hitting like a 15 to 20% ROI mm-hmm. on your renovations. If you're not hitting that, you're, I don't know what you're going to do. I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. It's, I've, I feel that through the past 30 minutes or however long we've been talking, we've been dissecting a little bit of the process of how you invest and you've used the word simple quite a bit. And you've said it's not that hard. You've said I'm not that intelligent. It's just a matter of which I'm. I'm sure you are. Very no, but look, this is simple fraction, right? I mean, look, yeah, you know, exactly. Under, and, I mean, and, this and, is not and, complex and, and math. The way you answered the question that I just asked, you said, "Well, rent upside, like it's not that hard," and it makes complete sense. What's the most important thing that you look at is how much can I increase the rents at? Yeah. How what level they are right now? And I mean, a lot of times we try to do too much, but at the end of the day, it's just. And the reason why we usually try to do too much or overcomplicate things is because we don't want, we're not patient enough, right? We don't want to spend in the five years that it takes to, or however long it took you to get to the point where, where you got to when you made your first investment. Yeah, but to be honest with you, that by, when I started that, it was also a decade before that of working 80 to 100 hour weeks in investment banks, mm-hmm. structuring deals. So a lot of those experiences translated into this, right? It's not like I got to like five years ago and then I started. Exactly. exactly. There was a lot of steps leading up to that point. Yeah, awesome. Let's move on, Omar, to a quick fire round. We have a few quick questions for you to get to know you a little bit better. Sure, I hope I'm ready. First question, what's your favorite place to travel to? Oh, travel to that. Look, I've gone to South America two or three times and I want to continue going to South America. I just love it. I, I can't speak Spanish. Where I in South America? I've been to Brazil and then Argentina, but I want to go to Colombia and a bunch of these other places as well. Why I like it? Because look, I grew up in Pakistan, right? Uh So what was really funny was when I was a kid, I remember, obviously I read about Machu Picchu and all these places, right? But when I looked on a map, when I have a globe, the furthest possible way that I could, at least on a globe, it looked like was South America. And also I I love football. That's funny. I love football. It's always been the opposite side of the world. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and, and look, uh, otherwise also, I, I love like South, you know, like so soccer or football. I love football. I love the South American culture. It's kind of cool, sexy, hip, right? I always yeah. like that. So, you know, it was one of those things, right? But I think it yeah. was because it was far away. So it seems like even more cooler than it should be, right? Uh-huh. I'm sure if you live in South America, you're like, whatever, man. Like, <laughs> yeah. right? no, that but makes for total me, sense. and so I loved it, right? I, I love it. Yeah, so That's, I want to do more of that. I, I mean, I, I've been to Europe a few times as well. I like it, but it just doesn't seem as cool and edgy as South America seems to me. At least. Awesome, awesome. Next question: What's your favorite movie? American Psycho. Ooh, I love that's that movie. Yeah, that's I love one. that movie. I've asked this question on a few other interviews, and this is the first time I get one that I've seen. So oh, I can yeah, say oh, I love American Psycho. I can man. say it's an awesome yeah. movie. Yeah. I actually saw it within the last year. It was on my list of must see. It had been on my list for a few years, but yeah, I highly recommend that. Dude, Christian Bale is a freaking monster, man. I love that guy. Yeah. I love Christian Bale. He is, yeah, one of the best. What is a quote that you live by? I don't have really a quote that I live by. 
I, okay, I well, you, remember a lot of quotes. You, you'll answer the question with the next question, which is what's uh, one of the best lessons that you have learned or one of the best advices that you've received? Oh, everybody's replaceable. We're all replaceable. Nobody, nobody's that intelligent. Well, nobody I know, at least, <laughs> is that intelligent that they are not replaceable. And I think I got the quote from you. You were right. The graveyard is full of irreplaceable people. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. All right, Omar. Well, this is it. You've, you've been a fantastic guest on the show. Thank you very much. Last question is, how can people reach you if they need something or to find out more about you or your company? Well, they can go to our website, Board Walk Wealth, B-O-A-R-D, Walk Wealth. That's one word. Right on the front page, you can it's just scroll a little down. You can fill out your name, fill out your email, fill out how you found out about us. Click on the button, whatever it is, verify my email or subscribe. I, I, don't, I don't remember what the exact name is. It's, you can see it. It's a button. Just click on it. Once you click on it, you'll get an email. And if you click on within the email, there's like a little button again. You mm -hmm. click on it, it verifies you. It adds you to our mailing list. What you can also do is email me at umar, O-M-A-R, at boardwalkwells.com. And yeah, I hope to hear from you guys soon. Perfect. Are you still writing articles? On, I've read a few on LinkedIn. Are you still doing posts? Yeah, I, I do it from time to time, you know, as I'm getting busier and there's less big things to write about. Now there are small things to write about, right? Uh -huh. So I, I, I do it from time to time. But uh, again, a lot of times I write it because somebody's asked me a question repeatedly, not the same person, multiple people mm -hmm. have asked me the same question repeatedly, or it's something that I come across and it kind of bothers me. And I'm like, okay, Gotta write something about that. Yeah, right? well, I really encourage everyone to look them up because the ones I've read are I've found very helpful and very interesting. Thanks. And it's been a pleasure to have you on, Omar. Thank you Thank very you much. So much. Have a good one.